last week we looked at Psalm 98, and it was messianic to some degree, and we talked about that. It was also a, a, pray, a psalm of praise, um, and it was written in an interesting way, right? Just for our memory's sake, um, it was divided up into three different strophes or stanzas or verses, and so right away, this implies that it has musical undertones to it. Okay, that psalm celebrated God's victory in salvation and prompted a response from all of creation, from every living thing. In fact, verse 1 of that psalm says, uh, God's people are to sing a new song to the Lord. And one of my main points from last week was that music is a right response to recognizing who God is and what he has done, writing of new music, singing new songs. So, when the ends of the earth, when every being has seen the love and faithfulness of God, they respond specifically by making a joyful noise to the Lord. And so I hope and pray that that was in your heart and going on in your spirit this morning as we were singing together, that this was a joyful noise unto the Lord. So for God's people, this involves making music as we've done. It involves singing songs. It, and I, to, I talked about this last week. It involves like picking up whatever instruments you can find and using it for the glory of God, playing it for his glory. But even if you can't find something to make noise with, you can make it with your voice, with your vocal cords. So Psalm 47, as Jason mentioned, it expands on this idea of praise on worship even more. So I do want to read it together again. And then have another word of prayer over God's word. So let's read Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our inheritance, our, our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, with the shout of a trumpet, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let's pray. Lord, may you be highly exalted. Not just in the songs that we sing, Lord, but in the very lives that we live. When, when we close our time together this morning and we walk out these doors, Lord, may our lives give you praise. And Lord, if that is not our intent, if our intent is this morning just to put on a show for the people around us, Lord, stop us. Keep us from being hypocrites in that way. But Lord, if our desire is to honor you and worship you and exalt you with our lives and not just our voices singing a song with everybody, Lord, I, I pray that you would move in us this morning and show us what we need to do to honor you and to worship you properly and with the right hearts, Lord. I bring this about in your name I pray. Amen. So I just want to look at the first couple of things in chapter 47. What are the first things that it says to do? Commands that it lists. 
right away. Clap your hands. Thank you. Yes. This applause is not for me. This is just practice, right? We're, we're clapping our hands. All right, let's just think about that for a minute. Um, let's think about clapping our hands. And well, what's the next thing? Shouting to the Lord. Okay? Um, you don't have to shout necessarily, but think about what is something, and I want you guys to give me some feedback here. What is something that we do as a people that involves clapping and shouting? Okay? We cheer for our favorite team, right? Boy, Cardinal fans had something to cheer for yesterday. It's a good game. <clears throat> what else? Anything else? What do we cheer? What do we clap at? What do we shout at? Okay, thank you. So music concerts. Graduations. Okay, good. I hadn't thought of that one. Anything else? Yeah, I was thinking maybe not so much the shouting part, but certainly clapping. Maybe moms and dads are shouting, you know. All right. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Moving along. (laughs) Another thing, and we don't do this so much uh, in our country, but when kings are coronated, when they're installed, there is a lot of clapping and shouting, and a lot of the shouts are repetitions of the phrase, long live the king. In fact, you, you see this played out in Scripture even. So when we're clapping our hands, specifically, what are we doing? We're wanting to draw attention to something, right? If you're in a, if you're in a a pretty quiet area with a bunch of people and somebody starts clapping, everybody's head turns and looks. What are they clapping for? The person clapping wants to draw their attention to something. A lot of times, most of the time I would say, in fact, in all the examples that we've given, Clapping is kind of that outward expression of what's of an inward joy that's happening. It's it's almost like it's bubbling out, and that's the first thing we do. I mean, I, all of my kids from a very early age, even before they can walk, you put music on, or they get real excited. It's a natural thing to just start clapping. Kids do that. That's kind of in us. I think they're they're expressing expressing joy. And as, as adults, and especially in like the realm of like athletics, when we're clapping for athletes, we're expressing like this gratitude, like, hey, you did a great job. This is really good. And we want people around us to pay attention to it, but also for them to know that we appreciate their efforts in it. And just so we're clear, we're not talking about golf claps here either. Okay. Depending on what golf course you're at, it doesn't look like that anyway, but um, we're not talking about little miniature claps here. We're talking about big, as loud a clap as you can make here. Okay, this is clapping with joy. So it's just a natural thing that we do, but in, in more of a, a spiritual context, clapping your hands, shouting, all of these things have kind of some spiritual undertones to them. Now, here's another question. This one I think is a little more obvious. Do all people speak the same language? It's a silly question. No. Not all people speak the same language. In fact, there are people in this room that can speak multiple languages. Okay? Um, So clapping is a pretty universal 
I'm not going to call it a language, but it's a pretty universal sign, right? It doesn't matter what language you speak. Clapping is usually, this. it means the same thing. It is a, a joyous thing. We can give God praise m- cross-culturally in unity this way, with clapping, this kind of nonverbal praise. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I hope you don't get tired of me quoting Charles Spurgeon, um, but he said, if the nations cannot all speak the same tongue, the symbolic language of the hands they can all use. So people from every tribe, every nation are going to respond to this command from Psalm 47 pretty similarly, right? They're going to clap their hands and we're all going to understand what that is doing. Now, all peoples here, when it says clap your hands, all peoples in verse one, I don't think it's specific to the nation of Israel. Now, certainly it includes the nation of Israel directly, right? They were his people called out by God, chosen by God for him. But it also includes people and people groups from every part of the world. This extended to the Gentiles, to everyone. So clapping is a cross-culturally acceptable way of expressing excitement and joy. And you can, you can see this whether you're watching, um, a, a sport in another language when a, a goal happens or somebody does something awesome. People clap, they jump up, and they shout. This is a universal kind of a thing that we're talking about. Now, people usually shout when something good happens, but maybe you don't want to admit this so much, but sometimes people shout when they're angry, right? So there's there's shout, there's good shouting, and there's not so good shouting, like... In an argument. Now, most of us aren't really against shouting, I don't think. It's just that most of us kind of understand the social decorum aspect of this. So, for example, most of us get that jumping up out of your seat and shouting and clapping is not really an acceptable, is not really an acceptable thing to do at like a funeral. At a baseball game, go for it. At a funeral, not so much. But I think the reverse is true too. If you're at you know, like maybe a wedding and man and wife, they kiss, they go down the aisle, everybody's shouting for joy and clapping and you're just sitting there like this. The reverse is true. People are going to be like, what's wrong with this person? Why aren't they excited for the bride and the groom? So it kind of goes both ways. So shouting in excitement is, is good. Shouting in anger, not good. All right, but look at the result. What is the shouting a result of in verse one? You can see it right here at the end of the verse. Shout to God with what? Loud songs of joy. That's the motivation for the shouting here in verse one. So let's get some perspective for a minute. If you look back at Psalm 46, this was a psalm that was all about God being a fortress for his people. Uh, you can kind of skim through it as I, as I mentioned these things. It is a fortress for his people, a stronghold that couldn't be defeated by his enemies, a solid rock on which to stand, a refuge to run to. No matter what happens, the one true God will endure. He will be victorious. In fact, I want to read verses 2 and 3 and then verse 7 from Psalm 46. It says, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, I have seen the movie Braveheart enough times to know that when you're confident in your leader, you aren't afraid to shout and make a little noise. Even when the odds maybe aren't stacked in your favor. Psalm 46 said that Israel's God is the true God. He's all-powerful and he will be victorious now and forevermore. Psalm 47, where we're at today, says that all the people witness this and are now called to obey Israel's king and join in their chorus of enthusiastic praise to that king. This is, going back to chapter 47, this is exactly what verse 2 says is the reasonable rationale as to why he should be praised. Look at that verse with me. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. Why? He's a great king over all the earth. He's the Most High. It is right to fear him. Now, some of your versions might say that the Lord Most High is terrible. That's not generally a word we use in this context anymore. I think the King James says it that way. This word terrible, it means to revere, to fear, but fear not in the sense that we usually think about it. It's the same word that Adam used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, when he and Eve had sinned and they had hidden and God was looking for them and he was explaining why he was hiding from God because he feared God. He knew he he had messed up. And he knew that God was good. And he knew that he should be afraid now. Something had changed. And that alone sparked the fear of the Lord in him. A a right fear of the Lord in him because of his sin. If you remember the famous quote by Joshua where he said, Choose this day whom you'll serve. Right before he said that, he told Israel. He said in chapter 24 verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord. And serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. So this fear is not a, a terror like uh, you'd think of of a horror movie kind of a thing. It is a, a respect, a fear in a sense that we are small and he is big and powerful. And he's right to do what he does with his creation. So when the psalmist here says, tells us, that the Lord is great, the Most High is terrible, that He is to be feared. What He's saying is that He's saying that we should have a healthy respect of the great King who is the Lord and King over all the earth, over everything. Now, I think that that phrase, King over all the earth, is significant here too and gives us reason why He is terrible or mighty or worthy to be feared. So, in this time... We've talked about some of these pagan gods before. These pagan gods were seen as um, territorial, as being over a specific region. So some of these gods like Baal and Molech, um, some of the other ones, they were uh, they had authority over certain areas or regions or over specific peoples. And so the psalmist here in Psalm 47 is driving home this point for all of his readers, including you and me, to remember. It's this, the Lord Most High is not a God like those other gods. 
He is the great king over all the earth, over all peoples, over everyone. He's not, he's not territorial. He is the king over all the earth, over everything. If you were to fear your, the king of your nation, how much more should you fear the king over all the earth? And that's what he's saying here. God's kingdom extends over every created thing. No one is exempt. No one can be out from under his oversight and his rule. Then verses 3 and 4 are the psalmist's way of rejoicing in the great victories that the Lord has brought about for his people. We've talked about some of these situations before in previous psalms that we've looked at where God has won the victory for Israel. Sometimes even without them even having to lift a sword. Right, Just go out and sing and shout, and the enemy was scattered. It's true that God used Israel's captivity to discipline them and to teach them. But ultimately, the land that was promised to Abraham was acquired and even enlarged under David's rule, under Solomon's leadership. And verse 4 mentions Israel's heritage or their inheritance. Uh, also called the pride or the glory of Jacob. So in its immediate context here, and what the psalmist is saying, he's saying that this is pointing to the promised land, this good land, Jacob's land. This holy land is still actually sometimes referred to this same way, the pride of Jacob or Jacob's glorious land. In fact, I think C.S. Lewis in some of his writings talks about it that way. But this kind of raises a question, or at least it did in my mind as I was reading and studying it this week. It says that Jacob is the one whom he loves. And it, it provoked this question. That's not the main thrust of our topic today, but I want to kind of touch on it quickly. This question of why. Why did God love Jacob? You guys remember what Jacob's name means, right? Deceiver. He lived up to his name. Why did God love him? And this prompts more questions. Why does God love the church? We blow it. We don't stand for truth like we ought to sometimes. Leaders rise up and then fall because of immorality. And you think, why does God keep sticking with us? Why does God love the church? Why does God love the world? As he says in John 3.16, the human heart is full of of bitterness, envy, pride, just about every other kind of wickedness. Why does God love the people of the world? And then the question continues to move more and more personal. Why does God love me? What do I have to offer? I'm prone to wonder just as much as everybody else, just as much surely as the nation of Israel, sometimes seemingly even more than them. And so maybe the the biggest question of all is not why does God love um, Jacob or the church or the world or, or me, but why does God love at all? Why would he love an, a creation that is that is wasting away, falling apart? So I think answering this question, it isn't fundamental to our point here, but it's helpful. And I think maybe the psalmist wants us to think about this. If you look right after this verse, there's a pause. Selah. There's a pause here. Why does God love? Is it based on your performance? Is it given as a reward for your regular obedience? 
Is it based on some intrinsic qualities that God sees within you? Maybe you don't even see in yourself. It's not what the Bible says. It's none of those things. God loves because God is love. This is what John says in 1 John. Now, that's not all that God is. He's not only love, right? He's just as, he, he's just as just and righteous as he is loving. He's just as sovereign, just as holy as he is loving. So it's not all that he is, but God is love. This is what John says in 1 John 4, 7. He says that love is from God. That's where love originates. Husbands and wives, if you love your spouse, that's a love that God has given because God is love. Verse 19 of 1 John 4 says that we only love, why? Because he first loved us. Love comes from God. It originates from God. It only exists in this world because of God, because love comes from him. One of the pastors I I read sometimes said this, the reasons for God's love are in him, not in the ones he loves. The reasons for God's loves are in him, not in the ones that he loves. God's love for you originates out of his own love, not of what's inside of you or what you do. That's how God loves Jacob because he chooses to set his affection there. That's how God loves the church because he's chosen to make the church the display of his wisdom and glory in the world. That's why he loves people because they bear his image because of his love. That's why he loves you and sent Christ to die in your place when you believe if you remember Romans chapter 9, verse 16, specifically, I've quoted this maybe a couple times in the last few weeks, says that his love doesn't depend on human will or exertion. It doesn't depend on what you work hard to do. What does it depend on? God who has mercy. That's where his love, that's why he loves. That's why Psalm 47 can say, Jacob whom he loves. Now, let's go back to Psalm 47, verse 5. There's something really cool in this verse that's going on that's not just immediately apparent. Listen to these verses, and I want you to see if you can pick out the common preposition. Okay? Genesis 11, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Okay? Psalm 144, verse 5 says, Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Did you catch it? What was it? What was the common preposition here? Come down. Right? God comes down, in a sense, to offer relief, to offer assistance, to rescue his people. But in verse 5, it says that God goes up with a shout. So the idea here is that after the victory, after God has come down and won the victory, he is viewed then as going back up. Well, where's he going? He's going back up to his heavenly throne where he rules over everything. And so since the deliverance was great, saving the world, he goes up with a shout. As people do it, and if we're willing to shout when the Cardinals hit a home run, we ought to be willing to shout when we recognize we've been saved from sin. 
The rescuer has fulfilled his promise and now he returns to his throne with celebration, with singing, with shouting and clapping of hands. So this was done with a shout and the text says it would often be accompanied by the sound of a trumpet. And oftentimes the priests would be the ones who would blow those trumpets on occasions of gladness, occasions of joy and celebration. Verses 6 and 7 then go on to give a specific command. This is kind of where this whole message has been leading so far. A specific command about how the people who want to celebrate their king, how they respond, how they celebrate. They sing. They sing. Look at verses 6 and 7. Five times in these verses, four in verse 6 alone, it says, sing. Surely there's something important, I think, going on here, something important about singing. So this, this may be so chaotic, but I want everybody to think about what you had for dinner last night. And I see all of you turning around saying, what do we have for dinner last night? Think about what you had for dinner last night. Okay, so the main dish, some side dishes, maybe even what you drank. Okay, um, on the count of three, I want you to say what you had for dinner last night out loud so everybody can hear. Okay, ready? One, two, three. <laughs> I heard fried chicken, um, and that was about it. Fish? Did somebody say fish? No, okay, see, I just made it up, okay? That doesn't work very well. When we're all just saying random things at the same time, there's not a whole lot of um, clarity. There's not a whole lot of unity. Uh, there's not a lot of understanding going on. Okay, so for contrast's sake, on the count of three, let's all sing a song together. Let's sing the doxology together. One, two, three. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It was so much more clear, wasn't it? When we all have a united purpose and when we do it together, there's clarity, there's understanding, there's unity in those things. Think about the Olympics that we just got done watching. When an Olympic athlete receives a gold medal, what is played? Their, their country's song, right? The, their national anthem. That athlete has just proven that they are the best in the world at whatever event they were competing in. And their countrymen back home, they celebrate by singing the same song, right? As it's playing on TV, and you, you could see, I don't know if you watched much of it, but you could see they would show people in other places, and they're crying, and they're singing this national anthem together. And it's really kind of a neat thing, it connects people across thousands of miles, across very diverse families, and even some diverse people groups. It connects them together. They align themselves with that athlete who's the best in the world, and they sing the same song as they celebrate. Now, guess what? 
when the people of God want to celebrate that they have aligned themselves with the best in the world, the greatest king, the most powerful ruler of all, what are they naturally naturally going to do? They're going to sing a song together. They're going to, they're going to sing the same kind of a thing. And guess what? It might include clapping. It may even include some shouting. When we sing the same song together, our differences begin to fade away. I don't, I don't know about you, but as we were singing that doxology just now, I wasn't thinking about what I had for dinner last night. And just so you feel better, I still can't remember what I had for dinner last night. Okay. Um, but I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't thinking about what's coming the rest of the day. I was with you guys in this, singing it together in this place, listening to your voices, hearing this united anthem of praise back to the Lord, and it was beautiful. Now, just because we're united in singing and our problems and differences maybe begin to, to fade away when we do, and I think they do, doesn't mean we just sweep things under the rug as a church doesn't mean that there aren't problems that need to be worked through. It just means that in that moment of praise and exaltation of someone greater than us, we recognize that those differences don't mean a whole lot at the moment. And we set them aside for something better, for something that means something more. One commentator I read this week said, Learn, therefore, the evil and folly of sin. It's rebellion against the Lord Most High. Learn also the real unity of believers. Whatever differences there may be amongst them in regards to lesser things, when they utter their hearts in praise and prayer, they find that they are not alone, that they are one. Now, interestingly enough, this is no lie, two years ago to this weekend, almost to the date, I preached a sermon called Why We Sing. It was a sermon series about why we, what we do when we gather, why we do it. So we talked about why do we sing, why do we pray, why do we take an offering, why do we baptize. And we, and we went through all of these things that we do as a church regularly. And two years ago today, I preached about why we sing. And one of the things that I said was this. Music is not only a means of connecting with and glorifying God, it also connects us to one another. And I still believe that that's true. There is a communal aspect to singing that I think is designed by God himself. So singing collective songs of praise unites God's people under his leadership. Just like we, we sing with that person and the national anthem is played and we're united under that same song nationality, we in a greater way sing songs of praise to the Lord and unite under his authority and under his rule. And so we've seen in this chapter so far this kingly kind of language that's used, this imagery. And so it it comes in verse 5 and every verse after that. You can kind of glance through these. We'll work through them quickly. Verse 6 says, sing praises to our king. There's that kingly imagery. Verse 7, God is king of all the earth. Verse 8 says that he sits on his holy throne, more king imagery. Verse 9 says, princes gather together, shields or rulers belong to God. So he's the great and awesome king over everyone, over all the earth. He reigns over all the nations and he sits on his holy throne. And it says there in the last verse in verse 9 that princes 
and shields, which is also translated rulers or strong ones. These are people who have real power and authority in our world. Even they assemble and gather together before the great king, the king of all the earth. So they may be kings of nations on the earth, but they come together to bow before the greater king, the greatest king, the Lord, the one true God. And so singing together is really one of the clearest ways that we align ourselves under the same great king. The more we study, the better we understand the character and rule of God, the more fervently we shall join in the anthem of praise as with other believers. So singing unchangeable truths about God, our King, unites us under His authority and it encourages a certain lifestyle among those who are singing that song. If someone in a United States of America aspect of it is, if someone is claiming to be a U.S. citizen and is doing all kinds of horrible things, we would say, we revoke your citizenship. You are not displaying what it means to be a U.S. citizen. The kingdom of God, we're expected to live in a certain way as well. So in this chapter, I do think that the immediate context we see is, is victory, recent victory, specifically what the psalmist, whatever was in his head, he was thinking of and he was praising God for it. And it's, it's exciting to see clearly that God is king and that no one can stand against him. And when that is played out in real life situations, as the author here was alluding to, it is exciting and it, it encourages praise, clapping, shouting for joy. But this chapter, I think, also helps us look forward to Christ. He is the one who has secured our inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, an inheritance that is undefiled, it's unfading, it is kept to the very end in heaven. It's being guarded by the power of God himself, Peter says in 1 Peter 1. Isn't it comforting to know that our king has chosen our inheritance for us? We would choose wrongly what we would want for our inheritance. We would think of earthly things and riches and we would forget the eternal. But our king has chosen our inheritance for for us. It's comforting to know that. It's comforting to know that God has come down, as this verse alludes, this chapter alludes to. He's come down in the form of a servant, taking on human likeness, giving up the glories of heaven in order to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. It's comforting to know that he has also now gone up in victory by defeating death in the grave, and now he sits at God's right hand in triumph. That's our king. That's our God. Surely, seeing him in that way for who he really is, it results in praise from his people. It results in singing, sometimes, sometimes loud praise, sometimes loud singing from people who have been united under him, his authority and his rule and who gladly sing praises to their king, the king who's worthy of every song we could ever sing, who's worthy of every praise that we could ever bring. That's our God. That's our king. And there's room in the king's family for every person who believes. Believe on him today. Let's pray. Lord, uh, it is it is exciting. It is 
joyful to think of the victories that you've won on our behalf. God, you have, you have slayed death. You've overcome the grave. And you've risen to new life. And now you offer that same new life to every person who puts their faith and trust in you. And so, Lord, I pray that every person hearing this this morning would say, I need that. I want that. And they would turn to you by faith, by your grace, Lord, and receive salvation. God, and, and once that, that has happened, that incredible exchange has happened where we give up all we bring is our sin to you and you exchange the righteousness of Christ for our sin. And, and Lord, once we have been robed in that righteousness, now, God, we want to assemble together and we want to hear about this king. We want to know his kingdom more. We want to befriend his people more. And Lord, as one, united under your rule and lordship, we want to sing praises and exalt you even more. So Lord, May we practice that this morning again as we sing this song of praise to you. In Christ's name I pray.